sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. We're so fortunate today to have uh, Tom Hunter with us uh, to bring our homecoming message. And uh, y'all know him a lot better than I do, and you know him a lot better than you know me. So uh, come on, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. So much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Uh, I was flattered and humbled when Garrett called me and asked me to speak. I'm not sure where I was on the list. I may have been his 30th person before he got there. But... uh, I'm sure there are some others associated with this church who would have a more inspirational, uh, uh, a better message perhaps to give, but I'm, I'm happy and privileged to be here. It's uh, homecoming. If you flip that word around, it's coming home. And who doesn't like to come home? You know, the prodigal son came home. Uh, students come home from college. Travelers come home. You come home from a hard day of work or school. Uh, Home is where your friends and your family are. And nobody treats you better than your family and your friends. And so it's been with this church. It's been 50 years. Let me take a deep breath. 50 years since I was really active in this church. I graduated from high school and went off... uh, at age 18 to college, Um, came back, got married, worked a little, went back off to college again, ultimately settled on the other side of Savannah, and I've been involved and a member of the Isle of Hope United Methodist Church for many, many years. But before those 50 years, I was here for 18 years, and I got to thinking about it, and I think that I was probably in this structure, in this sanctuary, in this church, over that 18 years, over a thousand times. Now, for those of you that do the math, 18 times 50, you know, that's not a thousand. But my grandmother, Noreen Bowman, made sure that I was here a lot more than just once a week. (laughs) And I think that's because she probably figured that I needed to be here, which is probably true. And that's really central to the message that I'm going to give you today. First of all, I'm not going to sing because I got a lot of things out of this church, but I didn't get a singing voice. Um, And I'm not going to give a sermon. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that there are two types of messages that are delivered from a pulpit. Even though I was here probably a thousand times sitting out there, I can't recall ever addressing the congregation from the pulpit. The two types of messages that get delivered from here are very intellectual, you know, erudite, you know, informed, learned, researched, logical types of messages, and that's what you get from your minister every week. (laughs) And particularly, that's what you got from Charlie Hodges, who is here today with his wife, Kathy, uh, a couple of years ago before the pandemic hit. Uh, I'm actually kind of glad that you didn't have a homecoming here last year because it's given me two years to separate what I'm going to say from what Charlie said. (laughs) And 
therefore I won't be unfavorably compared. Maybe not. Charlie, Charlie is an engineer, um, which means that he did a really good job putting it all together. And I was impressed after hearing what he had to speak, and I thought to myself, how good that really was. Spoken like an engineer, delivered with almost mathematical precision. You're not going to get that from me today. I'm not an engineer. I've come to the conclusion that I'm a storyteller. And storytellers, when they speak from the pulpit, they give testimonials. And that's sort of what I'm going to do today. The first thing that I really want to do is I want to apologize to the few people that I remember seeing here who knew me as a child. Because I've come to the conclusion that I was a tough kid. I was really a handful, as my mother would say. You know, it's hard to have self-awareness. Very few of us are self-aware. You know, we don't know how other people see us. Robert Burns, the Scottish poet, back in the 1700s, wrote a poem. It, the, the title of it's not important. But he had a line in one of those poems, and I'm going to paraphrase it. It's, what a gift to see ourselves as others see us. Over the last five decades or so, I've had an opportunity to think about that. How did my Sunday school teachers see me when I was a little child in this church? Uh, and to those people, Margie, June, and some others, I apologize because I was a bad kid. Coming <laughs> along. And that's part of the message today, too. Um, Charlie and I, and I'm having to remake some of the remarks I'm making today because Charlie's here, and I thought I would throw him under the bus, but I can't now because he'll have time for rebuttal at, at the meal later on. Charlie and I sat on that pew right there many, 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 many Sundays. And I used to think that that was because he and I were special, but I came to the conclusion that that's because his mother, my Aunt Mary, and my mother, Edith, sang in the choir every Sunday. And that was the closest spot that we could be so that they could see us every Sunday. In fact, thinking back on it, it's where the minister could see us and the organist could see us and the piano pianist could see us. And everybody in the back could see us too because they see the backs of our heads. So maybe it was because we were special, but I think it was because we, well, maybe not we, but me, I needed to be watched. I needed to have some supervision. And while I'm aware, while I'm at it right now, Charlie and I spoke for just a moment before, um, before we came into the sanctuary, and he reminded me that I was the troublemaker. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I can accept that at this point in my life. So, Charlie, I apologize for getting you into trouble as well. It's also good to see other members of my family here, my brother Brian and my sister-in-law Angie, uh, Jonathan, my nephew, and his daughter uh, Josie. Uh, but it's really good to see some older faces that I haven't seen in quite some time. Uh, and I hope that I'm not going to uh, disappoint you too much today. The three women in this church that probably knew me the best as part of my self-awareness travels 
were my mother, Edith Hunter, my grandmother, Noreen Bowman, and my Aunt Mary. Um, you know, they were very, uh, very involved with my daily life and daily activities. Uh, they were also involved with the founding of this congregation. And thinking about how bad of a child I was, you have to sort of see yourself through the eyes of other people. So I thought back about how they saw me. My mother uh, didn't have a whole lot of rules for me. Maybe she had them for all of us. I never actually asked my brother Brian about this or my other siblings, but I can remember many times before we would go out, we'd go to LNA supermarket up in Port Wentworth or to the bargain corner to go grocery shopping. This was a long time ago. Life has changed and the geography of, of, of Garden City has changed. But she would look at me and she'd say, Tommy, don't you embarrass me in public. Mom, if you're looking now, I hope I'm not embarrassing you because this is in public. But, but she told me that obviously for a reason. She wouldn't have given me that admonition unless I needed it. Uh, and she told me a lot, so I probably needed it a lot. Um, but it was all loving, uh, and she knew that I was probably a, a, a difficult child to keep track of. My grandmother, Ms. Bowman, had a pet name for me. Maybe she had a pet name. For, maybe she used it for Charlie. I don't know. Maybe for all of us. But she would always call me a poor wretch. Now, wretch is not a word that most people use anymore. But I'm reminded that a poor wretch is a central figure in the hymn Amazing Grace. So maybe I needed it. Maybe she was prescient and thought, you are a poor wretch and you really do need it. But when I was hurt, when I was disappointed, whatever, it was always you poor wretch. So I accept the fact that she saw me as a poor wretch. And then probably the best example of how I was a child in need of what this church had to offer I can offer with my Aunt Mary. Now, Charlie, you may not remember this because you weren't really a part of this per se, but uh, I spent a lot of time with Charlie and with my Aunt Mary. And one day we were going back to their house. We drove down Smith Avenue and stopped at the gas station that used to be at the corner of Smith Avenue and Highway 21. I don't even remember the name of it anymore. It's, it's a title bucks or something like that now. But we stopped, and uh, we were going to get a treat. And it, it had rained pretty heavily before we got there, and that's central to my story. Charlie jumped out and ran into the store to buy something, a treat, candy perhaps. I decided that I wanted to have a soft drink. Now, back in those days, they had a drink box outside, which was just a refrigerated cooler. It was metal. It had a little slide on the top had water inside that was kept cold and the drinks were inside the water. I got out of the car, walked around the car, looked at my Aunt Mary who was maybe three feet away from me. She was sitting in the driver's, driver's seat of the car, window was down, we were looking at one another and I reached over to that drink box to get my drink. And electricity coursed through my body. I actually 
completed a short circuit, I guess. So here I am with my hand on this drink box, <laughs> flailing about. My feet were going everywhere. I couldn't let go of it. I couldn't say a word. My vocal cords were paralyzed. And it seemed like that took forever. Finally, I broke free. I don't really remember how I did that. I probably dropped to the ground. But I got up and collected myself. And I walked up to my Aunt Mary and I said, why didn't you help me? And she looked at me and she said, for what? And I said, I was getting shocked. And I remember like it was yesterday, she said, I thought you were just playing the fool. <laughs> now, if I was playing the fool in front of some, one of the three women that knew me better than anybody else in the world, I can just imagine what I was doing in one of those Sunday school rooms back in the back. Nevertheless, while I was back there, the Sunday school teachers in this church continued to feed me and give me bits and pieces of Christianity. Um, they put up with me. Charlie was probably paying attention because he became the engineer, but I was probably looking out the window, watching an insect on the wall, counting the checks on the back of somebody's shirt or something like that, just not apparently paying attention. But the message I wanted to give you today is that some of it gets through. Even when you don't think that people are getting the message, some of it gets through. It's like planting seeds. You know, when we were here at Groves High School, some of the uh, students from other schools used to call us the farmers. And we took such offense at that when I was in high school. I don't know why, but we did. Uh, but farmers are sort of like what you do in church. The farmer goes out and plants seeds and he hopes that those seeds will germinate. He hopes that the rain will come and that the insects will stay away and, and uh, he'll ultimately get a good harvest. And that's what we do in church. We plant seeds. Uh, but the difference is the farmer only has a wish or a desire that good things will happen. In church, we have an expectation that God will make it happen. You know, uh, I'm really not good at remembering exact places in the Bible or you know, quoting verses and things of that nature, but, but Jesus told stories, he told parables. And one of the stories that he told was about you know, the farmer that throws the seed out. And you'll remember that. Some of it landed on fertile, you know, good ground and produced crops and some landed in places where it withered and didn't, didn't work out. The beautiful part of that story, as I recall, is that God didn't tell the farmer to go out and only find the good spots. You, you cast it out and let God take control. Uh, and if you do, those good things will happen. Well, now, if you fast forward about 50 years, I've led a good life. I'm, I haven't been, I don't know that I've had uh, extraordinary religious experiences you know, I've been a member of a church, I've gone to church, I've, I've done the things that I think have been expected of me, but, but in 2018, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. I actually went with Mike and Cindy Ricker, who many of you will remember. Mike, Mike and Cindy were here at this church for a long time. There were about 30 of us that went, and, and when we landed in Israel, Mike told every one of us to keep a journal. He wanted us to remember, to write down, uh, to remember what we saw and what we felt. 
And the reason for that became pretty clear. You know, Israel is not a big place. It's about 65 miles long. You know, you can, it's like going from here to Metter, from one end to the other. In a fast car, you can make it in an hour or so. And it's only about 25 or 30 miles wide, so it's a fairly small place. But every place you go, you see it written somewhere in the Bible. So what we would do is we'd go and we'd stop, and Mike would give a little presentation about the significance of the place, where it's found in the Bible. We'd have a, a, a prayer, and then he would let us go away and think to ourselves, meditate, explore, do whatever we wanted to. And some people kept journals, some did not. But I decided that I was going to write poetry. Now, I'm not a poet. I'm, I'm, I'm a self-poet. You know, I write for my own purposes. Um, but I wrote poetry at different places that I went. Some was funny, some was dark, some was in prose, some rhymed. It was all different kinds of things. But one day we went to the Temple Mount. And while on the Temple Mount, it had been raining that day. I don't know, rain seems to figure pretty significantly in all of my important life events. But nevertheless, it had, it had rained a little bit. So there weren't a whole lot of people there on the Temple Mount that day. And if you remember or if you know anything about the Temple Mount, it's basically the foundation, the flat foundation of what used to be Solomon's Temple way back in the old days. Uh, at the time of Christ, there was an area that sat where the Temple Mount is that was called the Antonia Fortress. And that's reportedly where Pontius Pilate resided and where he actually crucified, well, he actually condemned uh, Jesus to crucifixion. So we had, our, we had our meeting, we prayed, and I walked off and sat down uh, to meditate. And while I was meditating, I had just an overwhelming sense of wild animals around me. Don't know where that came from. I opened up my eyes. There were no wild animals there. There weren't very many people. But I picked up my journal, and in the span of about 10 minutes, I wrote the poem, which became the book, Two Wolves. I didn't plan it. Came out in verse, came out in good meter, came out in rhyme. And when I got back to Savannah, I thought to myself, that wasn't me. That was something special. So I thought maybe some other people need to see that because it's a good introduction to young people, to children, about the, cruci about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I started looking for an illustrator. Couldn't find an illustrator right, off the, right at the start. Uh, some illustrator said, I don't do Christian books. Some illustrator said, uh, talk to my agent. Um, but ultimately, I happened to mention this to Angie, my sister-in-law who's here today, and she said, my granddaughter is a good artist. I said, well, great. Let's see. Let's see what she's got. So I got in touch with her. We communicated uh, by phone, by text message, by pictures on our phones and all that. She sent me some work and I thought, by golly, she's good. She was 15 years old at the time. So she illustrated the first book that we wrote. And we had such a good 
a good rapport that she illustrated a second book that I've written uh, that's just now been published. I thought that what we would do is perhaps children would come for the pictures and maybe stay for the story. Um, and in fact, uh, I've had this conversation with a number of individuals and they said, this, this book is heavy. And I said, well, it's not heavy. It's not as heavy as the real crucifixion, <laughs> you know, uh, because it's written with animals. It's a story, you know, the only human feature in the book is Jesus. The other, the other um, characters are animals. And it's a story not so much about the crucifixion as it is a story about the two thieves on the cross on either side. So, um, we got that published, the pandemic hit, and we've been waiting to try to uh, do what we need to do to get that out into the hands of, of as many people as we can. Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't keep any profits from it, but I like to donate whatever proceeds are generated for Christian causes. But that's sort of what prompted the second book, and that sort of brings me back to planting seeds, is in the self-analysis, self-awareness of what I was like as a child. It occurred to me that I was so bad with my Sunday school teachers, I always asked questions that maybe they couldn't answer. And that particularly was true around Christmas. So the second book that I've written uh, is called Two Stars. Now, I don't have an infatuation with the word two. It just so happened that it worked out that way. Um, there were questions that I had surrounding Christmas, like how could you follow a star? You know, how could the wise men find Jesus but Herod couldn't? You know, things like that, you know, rhetorical questions that, a Sunday school teacher would just say, no, we're not going there. You know, we can't answer those questions. So I made up my own story. It doesn't violate anything in the Bible. It's sort of like uh, many of you have heard the, the song, uh, Little Drummer Boy. We love that, you know. Come, they told me, pa pum pum you know. And again, I'm not going to sing. Um, but... There's nothing in the Bible that I was ever able to find that said there was a little drummer boy that went to the manger scene. But everybody sort of likes it, and there's, it doesn't do any harm. And that's sort of the story here. And there's, a, there's some underlying messages to it. So if you happen to read either of these books, they're not jump, jip, jump. They're not see the book. You know, they're not like that. Um, I think parents, particularly who need maybe a refresher course in some biblical theology might derive something from it as well. And the theory that I've had in, over the course of this is that maybe it'll start that conversation with their own, you know, the parents reading it, start the conversation with their own children about, uh, you know, the, the foundations of our Christian belief. So circling back, it's all about planting seeds. Um, I don't know why it took 60 plus years, 65 years for me to do something, you know, 
My mother would say, what took you so long, you know? But, uh, but God works in mysterious ways. Just like she would say, why did you wait so long to speak in front of the congregation? And the only thing I'd be able to tell her is that Garrett never asked me to speak before now. <laughs> so thank you so much. I hope that maybe uh, uh, you picked up something that might be of value today. Um, this has been a great church. Our, our four forebearers founded it. Uh, they nurtured it. They planted seeds. And even though most, if not all, of them are gone, uh, the church survives. The church bears fruit. Thank you.